This is Clinical Grade by Healthy.io, where we talk with some of the leading visionaries in healthcare. I'm Tal Crows. Our guest today is Dr. Daniel Kraft. He's a physician scientist trained at Stanford and Harvard. He's also a prolific inventor, entrepreneur, and innovator. He's chair for medicine at Singularity University, where he also founded Exponential Medicine, and that is barely skimming the surface. Together, we'll discuss all things technology and healthcare, the trends accelerated by the pandemic, the promise of a data-driven, proactive approach to health, the future of remote care, and a whole lot more. Let's get started. Dr. Kraft, it's great that you're here. Your career so far has been unique and pretty eclectic. What started you down that path? Well, I've always been interested in, in science and, and uh, medicine and was lucky to go to medical school. But uh, when I was a Stanford medical student, I kind of liked everything. It was very hard for me to, to pick one field to go into. So eventually I did both medicine and pediatrics um, at Mass General Hospital and came back to Stanford to do hematology, oncology and bone marrow transplant, but got involved in digital health and medical devices and even aerospace medicine, uh, even joined the Air National Guard as a flight surgeon with F-16s and F-15s and always loved sort of the, uh, always kind of liked the idea of finding a problem and solving it in new ways. And so while I had sort of a traditional academic career, including in the sort of stem cell world, um, I, about 12 years ago, got asked to chair the medicine side of Singularity University, which was sort of an opportunity to look at the convergence of all sorts of different technologies and how they might really help us reshape and reimagine healthcare from, from prevention, diagnostics, therapy, global health. Um, and that sort of a sort of a accidental sort of path, but it's really um, uh, been an interesting journey to help uh, catalyze and sometimes, you know, invent things that can, can um, already today shape, shape the future of healthcare. You're the founder of Exponential Medicine at Singularity University. I think a whole lot of people learned the meaning of the word exponential over the past year or so. But what do you mean by exponential medicine? Well, the term is around the idea that many technologies um, can move exponentially. Some of them just move fast. Um, the classic exponential technology is Moore's Law, the power of computing getting roughly twice as fast and half the price every roughly two years. And that's the why, you know, a pocket computer now has more power than a crazy supercomputer did by far, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And we have many examples of exponentials, but many folks have the challenge of understanding that while our brains are wired linearly, um, many technologies move quickly and sometimes exponentially. And that convergence of fast moving technologies from Moore's law to AI, to uh, nanotech, to low cost genomics, to big data, kind of coming together at the convergence point is giving us an opportunity to really uh, reimagine how we can do different elements of healthcare around the planet. And hopefully to bring, you know, care anytime, anywhere at much lower cost um, and uh, have a big impact, including on uh, health equity, uh, clinical trials, and, and generally hopefully moving us from what we've done traditionally sick care to a sort of an era of continuous proactive healthcare. It's no secret that the pandemic accelerated the adoption of healthcare technology and especially remote care. We've certainly experienced that firsthand here at LTIO. But what will that mean going forward? And is there a chance that as life goes back to normal, people will prefer to go back to pre-pandemic forms of care? Yeah, I think one of the things that's really accelerated, you know, the idea of remote care, virtual care, and the idea of hospital to home or hospital to hospital um, is the idea that you know, in the old form of thinking, uh, care happens in the four walls of, of the hospital or the ER, the intensive care unit. And a lot of what we keep people inside of 
the hospital for, or we'll delay sending them home is to be able to collect some data. It might be their measure their temperature or their vital signs or the labs. And now we're at this sort of convergence point where a lot of that technology has been in this exponential realm, you know, digitized, uh, democratized, uh, demonetized. Uh, the fact that you can uh, wear a little a little patch uh, that can stream, you know, uh, an intensive care unit level of data through your smartphone anywhere in the world, or uh, you know, from, from your simple wearables, you can track your sleep and how you're doing after you've been sent home from a COVID uh, infection, or maybe after a total hip replacement. Are you walking more, walking less? Or even the idea of underwearables, little internet of medical things that you can go into each pair of your underwear that automatically sync with your phone and can track not just your steps and respiratory rate, but your respiratory status. So all these new forms are starting to align. And so that really has accelerated this ability to do virtual care. And the genie's out of the bottle. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's not going to go back to where it was. A lot of care still does need the hands-on, the face-to-face, the, the interaction, uh, but it can be blended more with virtual care on everything from mental health to diagnostics to, to complex chronic uh, disease management. You're very much an early adopter of technology, but most people are not. There's a learning curve, an adoption curve, right? Even at the height of the pandemic, it was still something of an uphill battle. What factors need to be in place to close that deal with the public at large? You see it. I think the future of medicine is not really about the technology. You know, you know, a lot of the sort of technology people call gadgets or toys or gizmos, you know, have been around sometimes for several years. The trick is getting them into the workflow and aligning the incentives uh, for, let's say, the clinician. So you might have, you know, launched a year or so ago, the blood pressure cuff connected in a, in a watch band, right? Or there's many sort of blood pressure cuffs you might want to be able to prescribe to a patient with hypertension. Is that data going to flow back to the nurse, the doctor, the healthcare system? Are they going to want to log in and look at it? Do they want to look at all the numbers? No, they want to see the trends or get an alert when someone's consistently too high or too low. So it's not about the technology. It's often how, again, how you integrate that and also the data. I mean, now we have exponential amounts of data from our internet of medical things. How do you make that not just data, but actionable information that the patient can use or the caregiver or the hospital system or the pharma company. So um, now it's the point of the, the, the key thing that's been catalyzed by COVID is a bit of the connecting of the dots so that we're starting to you know, force some of these functions to happen. The fact that we can do remote patient monitoring in the US, there's new reimbursement codes. Uh, the fact that uh, telemedicine uh, has been relaxed a bit in terms of uh, where and how it can be done and how it's being paid for. So I think on this exponentials, as we mentioned, um, the potentials get better and better. The trick is having the regulatory, the reimbursement, the payers catch up with where the technology already is. And, and, uh, uh, and that's part of the challenge and the opportunity. Maybe a little bit more about that potential. Depending on the technology we're using, each of us could be giving off thousands and thousands of data points, possibly more, which could be turned into a coherent snapshot of our health. On a population-wide scale, we're talking about billions of points that can be translated into new discoveries and clinical recommendations. So how do we connect these dots? Yeah, we're at this fascinating age of sort of omics, right? We can sort of measure our base genome, but now we can also measure our sort of phenome or, or digitome, our behaviorome, you know, all these sort of things as, that, that can be collected almost electronically. Our wearables today can measure almost every element of our physiology and behavior. And you don't even need wearables now. You've got your voice, which can be a biomarker for health uh, to pick up everything from mental health changes to neurologic disease, or the sound of your voice or cough can help detect uh, COVID or croup. Um, we're in an age where Again, this, these signals, you often, know, often haven't known what they've meant. Um, but now that, you know, 
our exponentially better smartwatches uh, can measure far beyond just our steps. They can tell who's wearing them, what kind of gait, uh, the changes there. Obviously, your sleep can be measured, not just your heart rate, but resting heart rate, heart rate variability. So bottom line, it's overwhelming all the things we can measure um, from our basic physiology to even our socium, you know, who and where are we around? Uh, what is it pollution? Uh, is it hot? Is it cold? So the point now is we can collect this data. The trick is gaining meaning from that. Um, I think uh, as we learn more about what's normal and normal for you, like your baseline is different than my baseline, we'll start to see these changes, like your resting heart rate is going up or your respiratory rate is going up. Maybe you have an early infection or early heart disease, and that might, be, we, might mean we can intervene early. Um, most of us are familiar with the check engine light in our car, but we don't know all the sensors that fed that check engine light. It doesn't matter, but hopefully that triggers us to plug into the mechanic. Similarly with our own health, which isn't quite as, it's more complicated than a car, but as we understand our own baseline and the data that's sort of our normal and abnormal, that's going to help give us that early warning, whether it's for an infectious disease, uh, cancer, a neurologic issue, a mental health issue, and then hopefully intervene early. It could be as simple as finding a urinary tract infection early or a problem with your kidneys early or your heart or your lungs or anything else. And we're starting to really build those databases and build the systems on top that can gain the meaning and hopefully crowdsource that and, and uh, catalyze new knowledge around the world. So most people probably see these wearables as sort of quantify itself, you know, something cool to have, but don't understand the ramifications for early detection of chronic disease or even cancer, which is a real revolution, right? Sure. I mean, quantify itself, we're probably both data geeks and we look at our steps and sleep and might track our meals and our, have our connected scale. That's all great. Um, and there's a lot of issues around who owns that data? Should it be your data, keeping it private? That's quantified itself. But the big, I think, shift that's starting to happen is to move from quantified self to quantified health, where that data, when you opt in, can now stream to your doctor, your nurse, uh, your public health system, so that uh, they can look at your biomarkers of health and optimize wellness and prevention and longevity, or diagnose that disease before you even know you have it, whether you know cancer can be picked up by certain uh, digital signals potentially as well, um, all the way to um, managing disease, something like Parkinson's, where there might be a tremor that can certainly be measured by a smartwatch and then your dose is adjusted, um, or um, uh, many other variables. So uh, it really is this time where we're going to move from sort of the data geeks where this becomes pretty much normal. Um, there are definitely challenges about who owns the data. How do you sift through it? How do you share it? Do you use blockchain to keep it secure? But it, uh, it gives us a real new lens. If the regulatory bodies and the payers and the many healthcare systems around the world can catch up uh, to really accelerate what we can do. You know, I think that this gets us back to what you were saying earlier, that what we call healthcare isn't really healthcare, it's sick care. Can you talk about some of the differences between the two? Yeah, the way most of our healthcare systems are really set up is to manage sick care, to manage disease, not really to keep you healthy. They're like, in the old days in China, the town doctor got paid more if his patients were healthy. Wouldn't that make sense? Um, and so our sick care model is based on the fact that most of the data traditionally is only collected when you go visit the doctor once a year, that very intermittent episodic collection of data at that random time for your primary care visit or when you end up in the urgent care or ER. And so that leads to our sort of reactive sick care model where we tend to wait for the patient to present with the more advanced disease, whether it's uh, uh, a cancer, a stroke, uh, 
a pandemic, uh, advanced renal disease, diabetes, et cetera. So, um, and again, the incentives are for hospital systems to have their beds filled and to do more tests and more biopsies and more procedures. We're starting to see those incentives shift in many parts of the world, whether it's a socialized health system like NHS or a Kaiser uh, versus the fee-for-service. And so as we shift the incentives, uh, healthcare systems, clinicians, patients themselves are going to be much more on top of this true healthcare side or even self-care. So we're going from healthcare to self-care where we're able to take more ownership over our health, do more sort of proactive things, whether that's understanding optimizing our diets or seeing our sleep patterns uh, or other elements to really shift the needle uh, to, to, to spend more of our time, energy and dollars on, on keeping us healthy and lead to not just long lives. You know, we all say you want to live to 120, but most of us don't want to feel 120. We want to make 120 the new 60 uh, to increase our health span, I think is, is uh, what we all sort of really are striving for, uh, both for individuals and for communities uh, around the world. So how do we shift those incentives? Is it a question of leadership? These are huge ships that are very difficult to turn around. So both in terms of big governmental organizations and also private healthcare, how do we help them adapt to the more proactive approach? Yeah, I think it's kind of like politics. All politics is somewhat local and all healthcare is somewhat local. Here in the United States where I'm speaking from, we have you know thousands of healthcare systems. Some are more functional or dysfunctional than others. It's, it's not one size fits all, just like medication can't be. And so I don't think there's only one prescription, but like one of the lessons from my exponential medicine conference is we can learn from each other what, what works in Tel Aviv or Rwanda or uh, Japan and Tokyo. We can learn and cross, cross fertilize faster, just like we're learning in the COVID pandemic, you know, elements that are globalizing faster. And I think uh, it does take leadership and uh, policy elements to ride a bit of that exponential rail, because if we're only you know, we're still stuck with regulatory systems that were built sometimes in the pre-digital world. It might be HIPAA, which is well-meaning, but doesn't really work as well in our digital connected age. It might be uh, uh, ethics that are out of date in the era of CRISPR for gene modification uh, or where AI and cameras can detect almost element elements of your physiology or behavior. Um, so uh, I think part of it is having a little bit of a forward-linking lens and, and future-proofing a little bit as you, you design new approaches, um, but also to realize that things take a bit of time, particularly in health and medicine, um, and to use design thinking uh, as well to not just assume because you've invented a new device, app, drug, platform that it's going to be utilized. You need to understand the perspective of the patient, the physician, the payer, the politics, uh, and put that in a local context and hopefully allow that to spread as a success in a certain initial market. This whole conversation has been pretty forward-looking, but finally, looking ahead, what are some of the healthcare innovations you're truly most excited about? Present company included. I mean, one of the crazy, amazing examples of of this convergence, you know, is is AI meets smart cameras meets diagnostics um, and the ability now to take uh, what used to be an expensive, not always expensive, but not easy to do uh, test like a urinalysis and now just do that with a smartphone at home in, in two minutes in the privacy of your restroom uh, is you know pretty magical. And again, the technology may have existed in a basic form a few years ago, but to connect all those dots and to prove it out and to get it paid for and have that information flow to the doctor and then and the pharmacist uh, or the healthcare system and to make that understandable to the patient and, and layering all those complex pieces together, it's pretty exciting that you know what was sort of possible 10 years ago is really coming together to actuality. Um, and so I think it's, it's sort of the examples of, you know, the, the healthy IO type model where 
uh, is completely reinventing what used to be sort of analog, really making it digital, almost magical and easier and dramatically, you know, improving the, the outcome and the cost level and the benefit, uh, particularly if you pick up early renal disease uh, in a diabetic patient, uh, you can make a huge difference um, and many other applications uh, going forward. Dr. Kraft, thank you again for this. Have a good morning. And that just about wraps things up for this episode of Clinical Grade. Thanks again to Dr. Daniel Kraft for joining us today, and thank you all for listening. We'll be back next month. If you enjoyed our podcast, please be sure to subscribe and to leave us a five-star rating. To see for yourself how digital health solutions are changing people's lives as we speak, you're welcome to visit our website at healthy.io. There, you can also subscribe to our newsletter or reach out to us for more information. Until next time, keep well, stay healthy.